You are listening to True Psychiatry. Every so often in the medical field, there are some recalls where practices get sort of revisited and we realize they were uh, too harming. And, uh, and it's always very uh, unsettling because we are trying therapies believing they are beneficial and we care about our patients. And then we end up finding that they're actually harmful. And I think the, the, the classic example is uh, thalidomide back in the day. And uh, I think more recently we had Vioxx and all the heart problems caused by COX inhibitors. In our field, we had one, or we still have one that is ongoing, that is uh, after maybe 50 or 60 years prescribing benzodiazepines for PTSD and phobias, we found out that they were actually very harmful for those particular uh, people struggling with those diagnoses. And uh, because of the nature of what we do, it's probably going to take another 10 to 20 years to clean up the mess. But also because of the nature of what we do, it's harder to have a clear picture, to make a clear recall. Our results are not that good, and our medications already have a lot of side effects, some of them at least. Um, so we are pretty much left with the kind of concerns that I'm going to present now. You may have heard of the concept of locus of control. Uh, locus of control uh, accounts for the perception that a person has that his or her actions are actually the the responsible, so to speak, for someone's current state of affairs or circumstances, meaning how much of my actions got me where I am. And then we have like internal locus of control, which is like, okay, I have perception that my actions got me where I am, good or bad problems or, you know, uh, problem problematic circumstances or, or good circumstances. And external locus of control is sort of this world blaming kind of a stand. Um, the, um, uh, an easier, easier way probably of relating or reporting or describing, I would say, locus of control would be like personal responsibility. How much of your problems are on you? And it has its limitations. You know, one easily could question and say that it's the other way around. Your perception of your the effectiveness of your actions, for example, or your responsibility is a result of your success rate as opposed to have a success rate that is a consequence of your perception of the role that your actions have in your reality. And I apologize if it's sounding too complicated. Um, but we do, have, we do have research showing that internal locus of control, which means, you know, being able to entertain your responsibility uh, and how it plays, your actions play in, your, in the causation or maintenance of your problems, is associated with better therapy results, is associated with longer sobriety times for people struggling with uh, addictions. It's associated with a more weight loss for people struggling with obesity. So keeping that in mind, we look now to, to a simple case. Someone comes to your office 
and says, I'm having low mood and I'm not sleeping well and all the shebangs. And you do what you do best, what we were trained to do. You want to help this patient. So you take a history and you collect the symptoms and, um, and then you, you place the symptoms in a sort of a cluster, right, that we're going to call a diagnosis. And we choose a treatment based on that and we hope for the best. And I think we have very poor results in that regard. And despite that, we continue trying so hard, which I think speaks for our, you know, our devotion to this career, to helping people. And it's a good thing. But I keep asking myself if any of those actions could actually be holding people back or fostering, um, not fostering, um, you know, improvement or the goals that we're uh, going for. And one of them is the idea that we attribute problems that patients present, like no low mood, to a brain disease. Granted, we don't have any evidence of such, but our training paradigm had that built in for most of us. And it's, it's the equivalent of saying, well, you know, considering the locus of control argument is equivalent of saying, yeah, you're depressed. It's some problem in your brain. You know, too bad, you know, like bad luck. And um, there's really nothing you can do. That's the message that is built in. And even if you don't believe that anymore, because you have opened your eyes and you, have, you are keeping up with research and you know that we haven't generated that kind of proof so far, a lot of our actions still send that same message. One of them is the, the treatments, right? Because we don't go about, we're not trained enough to explore the reasons or to use a psychological framework to understand why someone will be depressed. Um, so we still behave as if the, the, the genesis of that problem was inside of the patient's brain. And um, in addition to that, the solution is a pill. And I wonder if that sends the message that, well, here's the responsibility of addressing your problems is no longer yours, is of this pill, or it's mine as a provider, a prescriber. Um, and I can go a little bit further. That also worries me a lot, is even our wording to describe depression suggests that depression is an entity. We say that you have depression as opposed to say you are depressed. So there's something happening. There's a disease that hit too bad. Um, we say depression is in remission, just like we would refer to a cancer or an autoimmune disease that is an actual entity just waiting to happen instead of exploring, you know, instead of following, following the, 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 the evidence that research brings to say, listen, there's a reason people do better when they perceive themselves as part of the problem, their actions as part of the causation and maintenance of whatever problems they're going. And if they do so, that points towards a solution, or maybe that points towards a true diagnosis, meaning you are in the situation because of this, as opposed to have our topographical diagnosis that is just a description of what the patient is reporting from a symptom perspective. Those things do send a message 
that depression is an entity, that the patient was taken by it. That is possibly, and if you think I'm wrong, feel free. My email is info at nepmi.org. Open my eyes, okay? Because I, I always struggle with this, and I couldn't find another reading to sort of placate my anxiety in that regard. There's another thing that uh, always bothers me, uh, has to do with the work of Dr. Uh, Stephen Hayes and a research he did, and he finds out that results in psychotherapy are heavily impacted by patients' openness to change. So we are not favoring or fostering change with that approach. If anything, it sounds to me that we're off fostering stagnation. We're you know, telling patients, okay, we're going to take this pill. We're going to change the way you feel, despite no changes being operated in your environment. You don't have to operate any changes in the environment. We should achieve a different feeling, despite not changing the circumstances that cause those same feelings. And I know it sounds like I'm exaggerating. I know um, you may think that uh, this is like a silly detail in a sea of things that we do, but I feel they're so pervasive. Um, and then I, I wonder if we could look into what we do to at least see if we're doing a good job, right? And unfortunately, it doesn't look like we are. And I have some numbers here um, and uh, a few comments about them. Um, so we have an increase in diagnosis of depression. For example, I took from, um, uh, I can, I can if, if you email me, I can send you the references. But we have among 12 to 25 years old, 8 to 14. Okay, so here's the deal. In 2010, in the population aged 12 to 25, we had 8% of that population being diagnosed with uh, depression in the United States. By 2018, we had 14% of that population being diagnosed with depression. Now, meaning, we, we, which means we are diagnosing more people. Okay, For, from 8% to 14%. It means that we are seeing more depression in people. We are giving that diagnosis more frequently. For 26 years old uh, and up, it was fairly stable uh, at 6% from 2010. And then around 2018, started to go up until 2020. That was in uh, 7%. And then with COVID, spiked again. Um, during that uh, same decade, that sort of a campaigning for the expansion of the diagnosis of bipolar and autism started. And nowadays we have 22 of 22% of the whole United States population with some diagnosis, at least one di psychiatric diagnosis. One in five people have a psychiatric diagnosis. And our treatments also went up, right? We had 10% uh, of the population on antidepressants in 2010, and 13% of the population on antidepressants in 2018, and went up again since COVID. Um, so then we also know there was an expansion in the prescription of mood stabilizers, right, the neuroleptics and all of that. Um, 
And it seems like we have now something like 80 million people taking medications uh, in the country. So with all those efforts, with increasing the diagnosis and increasing the treatments, what could we see? What problems could we see decrease? What, what are we fixing, right? And if you look, for example, for we cannot take diagnosis into account because we're not very good at discharging people. We're not very good at removing diagnosis. Exactly because we understand depression as a entity that is a chronic entity, just like cancer or, 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 or an autoimmune disease, we don't remove that diagnosis. Once you receive that stamp, you stay there most likely. Even if you put remission, the diagnosis is still sitting in somebody's chart, and that is where the information comes from, those researches, you know, electronic charts. Um, so we would have to look to other measures to see if we're doing a good job. And one of them uh, could be disability for mental uh, illness or psychiatric diagnosis. And despite our effort with more diagnosis and more treatments, the disability rates only went up. And we could also look then into suicidality. And despite our excess, or not, let's not call excess, despite the increase in diagnosis and despite the increase in prescriptions and treatments, suicidality also went up through that same window. And I have the data from, so 2010, we had 12 people per 100,000 committing suicide. And by 2018, we had 14 people by 100,000 committing suicide. After that, there was a decline um, that uh, we all seem to, to already know that is related to uh, all-time uh, low in unemployment rate, because as employment unemployment rates unemployment rates go up, suicidality also go up, and once unemployment rates really go really down, it starts making a dent on suicidality. And then, of course, uh, uh, again, COVID probably uh, made a mess of out of this. Um, there's an author called Robert Whitaker. He wrote Anatomy of an Epidemics. This guy is a Pulitzer finalist. He's a journalist. And he attributes that, I think we can call fiasco, to the medications. That's his point. Medications are actually causing people to feel sicker in the long term. And he makes some very well-elaborated arguments that we should at least think about shouldn't just dismiss it because we are in the business of helping people. We're not in the business of defending a dogma, right? So if we find ourselves wrong, I would hope we can actually humbly look into this thing. And I have, and I can't shake this feeling that uh, because I know some people do well with medications, um, not many, but there are out there, I can't shake the feeling that there are some other things that we do that sort of enable, as I said before, a passive position. And I say that I want to ask you to think of your practice and tell me if looking under this, uh, through this lens, if your patients are not very passively hoping to feel differently despite not making changes in their realities. Speaking of realities, you can also have a claim. You can say, well, Rod, uh, I think medications are helping. I think all these diagnoses are actually helping and things will be much worse. 
because um, life is tougher. It's easier to survive nowadays than ever before, right? It's easier. We probably has less starvation than ever before. Um, it's easier to just keep yourself fed and warm during winter, for example, than it was ever before. Um, or at least better, easier than 60 or 70 years ago. Um, and then what we are doing is actually, it's not that it's causing the problem, it's just failing to make a dent in the problem. And then if it's failing to make a dent in the problem, then we're failing. Whatever we're doing is not helping, which kind of gets me back to my concern. If we're doing things that are actually fostering stagnation instead of fostering change, fostering improvement. Um, but then you can also claim, well, it would be worse without our effort. And then I would say the, the, the burden of proof is, is on you because I don't think we have any evidence of it. And then in addition to all of this, if, if we are doing something that is detrimental to patients, it wouldn't just affect our psychiatric care. It should also affect psychotherapy because the same mindset uh, that is, uh, psychiatric disorders are brain diseases. Let's stick to depression so we don't complicate this discussion. Uh, depression is a brain disease also affected uh, psychotherapy practices and, and the, let's say, imaginarium of therapists. Um, and I have a meta-analysis by Johnson and Freiburg. And here's the title of the meta-analysis. The title, the title pretty much gives you the result of it. The effects of cognitive behavioral therapy as an antidepressive treatment is falling. A meta-analysis. And I'm going to read. A meta-analysis examining temporal changes or time trends in the effects of cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, as a treatment for bipolar depression was conducted. A comprehensive search of psychotherapy trials yielded 70 eligible studies from 77 to 2014. Modern CBT, this is the conclusion, modern CBT clinical trials seemingly provided less relief from depressive symptoms as compared with the seminal trial. So whatever we're doing is contaminating everything we do. And I know, again, it's a daring statement. But I wonder how would it cost for us test the alternative hypothesis and how to do it. And about how to do it, I just want to assure you there are alternative models of practicing psychiatry that don't involve those actions as I presented that are consistent with, a, with this idea that I'm sharing with you. Um, and that they still meet criteria for standard of care. So, you know, we don't have to fear litigations. We just have to embrace a different angle. And as a result of that different mindset, we can start practicing things differently. And that, of course, involves considering prescriptions in the context where the patient is and in the actions that the patient needs to uh, take to change his reality. Um, we do, however, our field has been contaminated by our culture, big time. We, our field got contaminated by the victimization culture that we live, that we live in. 
And um, the, 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 the idea of personal responsibility suffered a decline in the culture and apparently affected us all as well. And someone's going to say, no, Rod, come on, you know, like lay people culture. Is that what you talk about? Say, yeah. It's going to say, no, people talk about empowering all the time, empowering, empowering. Yeah. But if you empower without giving responsibility, that sounds a lot like spoiling. And again, look at your practice, expecting to feel differently without doing the things that make you feel differently. Sounds a bit too much. Sounds like a job for cocaine. Cocaine can do that. Cocaine, but it's unsustainable. Because our medications are not as good as cocaine to make you feel good. Not in, not in the short term. And in the long term, more and more data is coming up to show that they're not doing a great job to the very minimum. So I wonder if we could actually look at our practice in a different way and remind ourselves. And of course, I don't know. You know I, can, I can have my clinical practice to prove that, but we know how clinical observations are so biased. Um, gladly, I hear a lot. I have a lot of pen pals around the world because of the podcast. And I get feedback saying, this is how I'm doing this thing. This is how I'm doing that thing. And even people that uh, refuse to talk in the podcast because they are afraid of pushbacks because this idea challenges a lot of the status quo and it's probably very anxiety provoking. Um, and we have reports of psychiatrists who were, uh, you know, sort of a cornered in that regard. Um, I, again, it's all out there. Um, but I wonder if we could actually go back to believe in people. Not see them as much as a victim of this magical disease in the brain that we call depression, but instead believe them, believe their capacity to, to do amazing things, to do good things and to do bad things, because that's what human beings are. We are capable of amazing stuff. Some are terrible and some are good, but they both prove my point. And we can look at them. And believe in people again and say, well, you know, let's see how you got yourself there. And if it, you didn't get yourself there, then I would invoke uh, existentialism and say, you didn't choose to be where you are, but you're condemned to be free and make the decision or, of where you go next. Um, maybe. Please let me know what you think in the comments or email me. Thank you for listening to this episode.